Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Health Canada is demanding, as you know, labeling for ground meat. Canada's beef producers are directly challenging the government's decision, and they're asking questions about why now, and uh, by labeling the meat product most purchased by Canadians, why? Also asking Canadian consumers to object to Health Canada's requirements. Tyler Fulton is the president of the Manitoba Beef Producers. He is also with the Canadian Cattlemen's Association leadership team, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show Mr. Fulton, how are you? Um, I'm good. How are you today? Great. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, somebody just uh, sent me uh, on Twitter a message. The only warning that belongs on beef is not to overcook it. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) why do you believe Health Canada is now demanding warning labels on ground beef? They're saying it's to allow consumers to make healthier choices. What do you think? Yeah, well, the the issue kind of came to us actually a number of years ago before COVID and everything uh, everything transpired there, and um, and it was effectively shelved, and so we hadn't really uh, we engaged on it, you know, back then three three or four years ago, um, and it and but it just kind of went quiet, and then just in March we saw it uh, kind of brought back up to the uh, to the fourth to the the front and and so it's unclear really i, I mean to, to be honest i find it a head scratcher as to why um why this label uh requirement on on such a healthy single ingredient product at this point especially after we saw uh what we did in terms of home consumption over the course of covid and and uh just proof that it was such a popular versatile um, and, and healthy products that Canadians love. Yeah. Are you, have they been absolutely clear with you? Absolutely clear, unequivocally clear about what the labeling will state? Yeah. Um, it's, it's clear it would have a label. Um, and, and I think there's some, some details on the size of it, but um, unencumbered on the front of the package that would say high in saturated fat. Um, and that would be uh, applied to uh, products both uh, lean ground beef and and extra lean ground beef. Okay, as my next guest has written on Twitter, at food professor, Professor Sylvain Chalabon, he he has concerns that maybe this would take ground meat out of the supermarkets because grocers may not want to carry food bearing essentially a warning label, so grocers may just carry the very lean and more expensive ground meat. Do you share that concern? Well, absolutely. There's um, there's a ton of unintended consequences that could happen from this type of regulation, um, not the least of which uh, a shift by consumers towards more highly processed foods. Um, that's that's another kind of confounding problem uh, that we've got with, with this uh, proposed regulation and that really the... The, the overwhelming theme from the last Canada Food Guide was that really consumers should moderate their consumption of highly processed food. And, 
and to be clear, ground beef is a single ingredient product. It is strictly beef that is ground in a, in a ground form. And so it makes one ask the question, if, you know, if they want producers or consumers to move away from a product that is, you know, is nutrient dense and, and a, you know, and a single ingredient, what are they going to go to? Uh, it, it seems obvious that they would move towards a more highly processed product um, of which some of those products would not be um, would not see a label um, that would be equivalent to the one that would be uh, proposed for ground beef. Do you think there's the possibility of an ulterior motive? Perhaps beef doesn't really meet uh, the government's climate change objectives. So, so I think we've come a long ways in 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 definitely bringing. Uh, you know, segments of the government, in particular the ag department, um, uh, along on our message of uh, of environment and, and climate change. Uh, we in the beef industry consider ourselves uh, a, a really core part of the solution to climate change. Um, and I, I think it's really important to distinguish the difference between Canadian, the Canadian food production system and specifically beef production versus um versus other uh, other uh, origins of of beef, um, they have a higher carbon footprint than than we do in Canada, and it's just there's such a great environmental story with respect to uh, the conservation of wild habitat um, and carbon sequestration that happens on our perennial grasslands um, that I feel like the the message maybe hasn't completely been. Um, uniform across the, the whole government, but um, I'm I'm optimistic that we're making some headway here because uh, it's well, it has been an uphill battle, but um, I do feel like they're 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 starting to listen. I think. Yeah, well, I got your message in sixty seconds. It's not that complex. <laughs> yeah. What's the? Uh, go, ahead. go ahead. Yeah. No. What's the impact on uh, on the industry and on the family farms in Canada? Yeah, I, to me, this is, this is the, the critical thing. I, I think this is the reason why it resonates so strongly with farmers and ranchers, this issue. And, and that, um, it's been a struggle. These, these last few years, uh, in, in the beef industry in Canada, um, have been tough. Um, in, you know, partly, uh, from market factors and supply chain issues. But also, um, also the the weather related uh, disasters that we've seen. The drought uh, across all of Western Canada last year was just had a devastating impact on on really individual farms and ranches. And so, um, in the context of that, uh, this this front of label packaging issue um, seems like another hurdle that we have to overcome. That we um, we can't afford uh, for consumers to, to to really shy away and and lower their demand for this product when uh, we're in such tight margin situations uh, today. And and I think it really does just to circle back to that environmental message. Um, if we on the in terms of beef ranchers and farmers are not on the landscape, um, then quite simply, there's not going to be the wild spaces that we provide um, that, you know, that society benefits from. What do you want Canadians to do? 
Oh, we'd love to to um, engage them. I mean, and, we, and we've got a phenomenal amount of uh, positive feedback and support from Canadians on on this campaign. Um, so we have a website uh, that's called don'tlabelmybeef.ca, um, where uh, consumers can engage and and uh, and get involved and get involved and advocate um, on this issue uh, to to say this doesn't make sense. Uh, from a nutritional standpoint, from an economic standpoint, um, and, uh, and and yeah, and and I think just uh, pass that message along to policymakers um, so that they that, that it's clear to them um, that this uh, that we want an exemption for ground beef on this product. Don't label my beef. Ca. So I'm going to engage on that personally. And I said on the air a few minutes ago, I'm also going to have, in celebration of doing that, a really nice burger tonight. Well, it's Father's Day, right? This is uh, this is <laughs> Burger Burger Central for uh, Burger Sunday for Canadians. Yeah. So, Health Canada requiring the labeling of ground meat, and the dairy industry is looking to raise the price of milk again which our guest is openly challenging. Our guest, of course, Professor Sylvain Charlebois, Director of Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory and Professor at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thank you very much for joining us. You were listening to the conversation I had with Tyler Fulton. Uh, just uh, in your words, again, share with us what your thoughts on this whole idea of Health Canada getting into our fridges and freezers. Well, I mean, uh, I, I feel for our beef industry. Uh, they've gone through a lot in the last few years, for sure. Uh, and, uh, and of course, they've been working very hard in making beef more sustainable. Uh, as you may know, there is an issue called the Cane Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Uh, so a lot of people may be concerned about the uh, sustainable aspect of beef, but been, there's, there's been a lot of work in the industry to make that happen. And so obviously, <laughs> when you hear about this front of package labeling policy coming forward, uh, obviously they, they feel that they haven't done enough and uh, they've done a lot in the last few years for sure. And of course, I, I almost see this as an insult to, to most Canadians who actually adore beef in general. I mean, beef is, is a central part of our, of our culinary traditions, our culinary history uh, in our country. Uh, today is Father's Day. A lot of people will be eating uh, beef uh, products over the next uh, few hours. So to tell them that, well, you know what, uh, this is an unhealthy product, a single ingredient product is unhealthy for you. Uh, it's a bit insulting, to be honest. It's insulting to our beef industry to, and to Canadians as well. Yeah, and, and as you pointed out, and I mentioned Mr. Fulton, it places grocery stores in a predicament, doesn't it? Absolutely. And so uh, when you understand the economics of food retail, I mean, a grocer will want to uh, push products they can actually sell. <laughs> uh, the thing about uh, products uh, labeled as unhealthy, you, you, it, it becomes harder to sell. And that's, that occupies shelf space, pressure space. So obviously you will want to replace that product with something else that you know you can move. It's as simple as that. So, uh, in once this policy uh, is implemented, my guess is that you'll you can only find very expensive, extra lean ground meat uh, at the grocery store, and uh, and that ground meat will be obviously more expensive, 
and it, and and the other types of ground beef will be replaced by other products. And fifty uh, percent, if you look at beef in particular, fifty percent of all beef sold in Canada is ground beef. So it's a huge chunk of their sales, and that's why they're very concerned. Yeah. So, and if I wanted uh, barbecue lean ground beef. I have to break an egg into the thing so to sort of keep it together. So that kind of defeats the whole purpose, doesn't it? That's right. And of course, and I'm not sure if it came up in your conversation. I think it did, but uh, Health Canada's threshold flies on raw ground meat, not cooked <laughs> ground meat. And I don't know of a lot of people who actually do uh, eat uh, ground meat raw. Not not many. No. No. And so that's why. I mean, it, it's hard not to believe that, uh, that ground meat is, is being discriminated against, really, when you look at that policy, because other products like dairy products are, are actually exempt from this policy. So the solution is pretty simple. You either uh, exempt ground meat or you actually uh, include dairy products as, as part of a list of products that would need to comply with this new policy. So switching over to dairy products, the effort is underway, I understand, not yet uh, firmly in place, but to raise milk prices again. Speak about that, would you? Yeah. Speaking of power and influence in Canada, dairy farmers of Canada are arguably one of the most powerful lobby groups we have in this country. And yet again, they've actually made a request a few weeks ago to uh, to the Cain uh, Dairy Commission, uh, this crown corporation we all own, uh, to raise milk prices again. Uh, you may recall, Leroy, we actually we spoke about this uh, a few times. In February, uh, dairy farmers got a record increase of 8.4%. It's almost double the last record, and they're going back at it again. Now, I'm not disputing the fact that dairy farmers may need an increase. The challenge is how they do it. There's, there's no transparency. We don't know exactly how they're, they're coming with, uh, with, uh, with numbers justifying an increase. And so they, what I'm hearing right now, Roy, it's pretty disturbing. We may actually hear tomorrow, Monday, that milk prices uh, for farmers will actually increase by as much as 7%. Yes. 7%, and we could see another 5 to 8% in February of 2023. So this is, essentially, supply management is, is making the dairy section so expensive, it's going to push Canadians away. That's a lot. So in the 45 seconds we have left, uh, what happens to the price of food in Canada over the next 12 months? And let me throw in food security as well. So things aren't aren't necessarily easy right now in terms of access. I don't think we're gonna we're gonna see any challenges. But in terms of food prices, uh, there are many pressures uh, out there uh, pushing prices higher. And and the big one is uh, is input costs due to the Ukrainian conflict. Um, by September October, we do think that we're we're going to be in the deficit. We spoke about this before, and 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 I think things are going to get tighter. Unfortunately. And so we are expecting uh, food prices to continue to rise. But some of the policy-driven increases, like the Cane Dairy Commission situation, 
is something that we may want to avoid for now because we're putting way too much pressure on consumers right now. Danielle Smith joins us, a former Alberta politician, of course, a leader of Wild Rose formerly, also a six years on our chorus radio stations in Alberta, CH Chorus 770 in Calgary and 630 Chat in Edmonton, radio talk show host and a colleague of mine. Uh, returning into the world of politics, how are you, Danielle? I am well. You might think I've lost my mind wanting to get back into politics again, no. but there's lots to do here, so I'm looking forward to getting No, I, I don't. This it. is an exciting time to get into politics. It really is, especially when we see what's happening at the federal level. Like, I think Pierre Polyev has just taken the world by storm, and he's really re-energized the conservative movement. And I think we're going to see a lot of crossover in Alberta. I think he sold most of his memberships. If you look at how, per capita anyway, in Alberta. So I think everybody is getting is getting amped up again to fight a couple of elections, one at the federal level, and then, of course, the provincial level, which is happening next year. So let's talk about why why it is that you decided to uh, get back into the political race, as Jason Kenney will step aside as UCP leader and, and premier. And, and what are the most significant issues for Albertans? Well, the reason I'm jumping back in is the job came open. I thought that the premier would actually end up being a, a three-term premier and might end just as popular as Ralph Klein did. But I think there was a couple things that ended up derailing him in the in the last couple of years. I think he did a, a terrific job representing us on the energy file and finding that that balance between communicating to the rest of the country that we really are at the front of the pack when it comes to in, environmental issues. And I've done a lot of work on that in the in the last decade or so. So I'm looking forward to continuing the work that was done there. But the uh, the two areas where I think the, the premier ran into some trouble was on the uh, the COVID response. I think he had promised again and again and again that there would be no vaccine mandates vaccine passports. And then there was a, a complete reversal on that. And that I, I think disaffected. It was one one step too far for those who wanted to see a better balance. And he'd done he'd done a pretty good job up until then, but I think that was a bit of a breaking point. But more more problematic for him was that he got a clear mandate from the people of Alberta that they wanted to end equalization. And there doesn't appear to have been much action on that. There have been, over the years, going back 20 years, discussions in Alberta about how we can assert ourselves more like Quebec. And it sounded like this premier initially was going to do that. And he never ended up making progress on collecting our own income tax and having our own provincial police and getting our own pension and having your own employment insurance. And these are the kind of things that people wanted to see. And I, I think they, they kind of lost faith that there was going to be any meaningful action on that. But those are the issues that are rising to the top right now. Okay. Now, one issue that's been written about, talked about, that you said you would put in place if you become the premier of the province is the Alberta Sovereignty Act. What exactly would it be? How would it work, Danielle? The, there's a couple of things I'd say. I mean, we all have become accustomed to talking about sovereignty in the context of First Nations and the nation-to-nation relationship that they have with the country. I think we're accustomed to talking about it in, in terms of Quebec and the nation within a nation concept that they put forward that got affirmed by all the f- federal parties and the federal government. Uh, Saskatchewan has said very much the same thing. They want to go in that direction. So we just want to follow what other provinces are doing for a number of reasons. Um, one of the things that we saw with Quebec for instance, is that they, when the Emergencies Act was declared, they held an emergency meeting of the National Assembly and said, it's not going to apply here. And then look at what British Columbia just did. They, for years, did not enforce cannabis possession laws. And now they've said that they are getting a criminal criminal code exemption so that people can possess and use hard drugs, fentanyl, crystal meth, 
uh, cocaine. So it seems like we've established the precedent that there's a different cultural differences in our provinces. And so the Alberta Sovereignty Act would simply do that. It would say we will not enforce any federal laws that interfere in our areas of provincial jurisdiction or violate provincial rights. So that to me seems like there's a, a very clear precedent that's been established in other provinces that that is the direction the, the, the federal government seems to be willing to go. And we, we need to do that here too. The, the biggest breaking point, I think, in Alberta was, you've probably heard of it, Bill C-69. It was called the No More Pipelines Bill. Oh, but yeah. the, the reason why our... Yeah, or the, but the, actually what it turned out to be is no more building or developing any resources in Alberta Bill because it goes so deep into provincial jurisdiction and micromanaging projects that are 100% within Alberta boundaries that it's quite clear why it is that the provincial the uh, provincial court sided with us and I'm I'm very hopeful that they will at the Supreme Court level but those are the kind of things that we've got to push back against Ottawa they're they're way so, too in our lane and they got to get so back if, in their own if Ottawa says uh, to the provinces Alberta included this is the way it's going to be and you as premier say no under the alberta sovereignty act this is not the way it's going to be and so we're not going to enforce this particular legislation uh, legislation or this initiative or whatever it is you're putting in place we're not doing it that's fundamentally what would happen yes that's exactly what would happen and i would just hope that it just puts a warning on ottawa i i mean i don't think quebec is sitting back cowering and worried about the ways in which no, ottawa is going to interfere in their decision making process and yeah. so why should we be sitting back cowering and worried about the way Ottawa is going to interfere in our processes? They just shouldn't be interfering. And well, we can develop, I think, a mature relationship that recognizes what, Alberta. Smith, I never put the words cowering and intimidated <laughs> in the same sentence with Daniel Smith. Would never happen. <laughs> No, I tend not to be. I tend to be able to assert myself. And that's what we have to do. I mean, part, part of where we've been acting like a junior partner. And the reason I use that term is I think in Alberta, we were so damaged by what the federal government did to us with the National Energy Program. And I think what happened after that, it was, okay, well, maybe if we just keep our heads down and work hard and pay our taxes, they'll just leave us alone so we can develop our resources. Well, they're not leaving us alone. They're still interfering in our jurisdiction. And so now as we continue to grow out, I mean, our economy is going to be the yeah. second largest in the country within a, a matter of years. And our population, I've looked at projections, we're going to be the second largest uh, populous, most populous province, probably around 2050. So it's all part of the economic picture. And we've talked a lot about the economy and the economies of the world challenged at this time in particular. Interest rates in this country going up, interest rates in the United States going up uh, 0.75% the Fed last week. Canada's uh, banks, the Bank of Canada, has said it's going to raise interest rates as well. Inflation, we know, is at a 40-year high. And uh, we talked earlier on the program, took some phone calls from folks about Canadians finding themselves in financial difficulty. 57% of us saying we're within 200 bucks of not being able to pay the bills at the end of the month, and 40% of Canadians saying that if interest rates climb, well, maybe bankruptcy is the next step. And one in four Canadians saying that if interest rates climb, they may be forced to sell their homes. That's the reality. That's where we are. So with all of this turmoil and all this gurgitating of uh, economic information, I started to... Because I'm, I'm a history buff, so I started to pay attention, look back to 1929 and the great stock market crash 
in uh, the United States. There were three days in particular that in October of 1929 that um, that precipitated or that really led what went on. Uh, one was October 24th, then came October the 28th and October the 29th. We're going to talk about this with Professor Richard Silla, Professor Emeritus of Economics and former professor in the history of financial institutions and markets at New York University, Stern School of Business. He also teaches courses in financial history. Professor Silla, thank you very much for coming on the program. I, 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 find, uh, I, I find talking about the, the stock market crash to be simultaneously invigorating and terrifying. Well, I think I... We haven't had a, a real crash yet. I guess we're in a bear market now, but uh, that doesn't mean we won't have a crash. Uh, there, there's sort of a crash going on in cryptocurrencies, uh, which have lost a huge amount of their value. But so far, uh, we're just we just made it to a bear market uh, very recently in the U.S. Right. Does anything in the economies of the world, and particularly in the economy of the United States, ring sufficiently loud alarm bells for you? that the D word and not just the R word come to mind? Well, I don't think that, I think there are some similarities to the 1920s in the sense that there were a lot of captivating new technologies in the 1920s, uh, one of which is the one we're using right now, radio. Uh, Radio seems old hat today, but it was very new stuff and very exciting in the 1920s. And one of the really hot stocks was the Radio Corporation of America. But you also had uh, the automobile business becoming very big. Uh, It didn't start in the 20s, but the 1920s was when most Americans uh, managed to get a car. Um, then you had airplanes, of course, the aviation uh, industry was coming and the air- airlines were uh, beginning to be established around then. Um, movies, the entertainment, you know, we were moving from silent movies to uh, talkie movies at the end of the 20s. So there was a lot of new technology. Uh, you had business friendly governments in Washington. I suppose we wouldn't, uh, businesses wouldn't say President Biden's all that friendly, but certainly Presidents uh, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover were business friendly. Uh, The technology sparked a lot of speculation. The the market got to a a very high valuations, probably exceeded only by 1999, 2000, the dot-com era. And uh, today, when we had such low interest rates fueling uh, very high valuations in our stock market. So there were certain similarities. But there were certain differences, too. I think the United States was on top of the world in the 1920s uh, as a result of uh, World War One. You know, we'd become went from being the world's largest debtor nation to the world's largest creditor nation. Uh, the uh, capital markets, the you know, the center of world finance was shifting from London to New York. Um, and. Uh, uh, so I think that the Americans were really, really feeling good in the 1920s. Uh, uh, today, I wouldn't say Americans are feeling so good about their place in the world. So that that's kind of a big difference, I'd say. Yeah. 1920s, as well as I understand it, was a time when there was tremendous enthusiasm for the stock market and millions of people, maybe I'm overstating the number, but there were significant numbers of people who didn't have the money to really invest in the stock market. So they went to the banks and they borrowed money to buy stocks and they didn't have really enough money to down for the proper down payment or to guarantee their, their loans. And so they, they borrowed this money, they bought stocks. And when it all came apart, um, so did the banks. Am I right about that? Well, I think you're you're partly right. I think that uh, 
you know, a lot of Americans did have money in the 1920s and, and uh, uh, they also borrowed money to buy stocks. You know, you could invest all your own money and then you could borrow money to uh, leverage yourself in the hope that the market would go up. And there was a lot of that going on in the 1920s. Uh, again, World War One was a factor because the U.S. government sold a lot of bonds in World War One uh, to finance the war. And in the 1920s, they began to pay back some of those bonds. But the fact that the government had borrowed so much in the 1940s 1918 war meant that Americans were many more of them were used to paper investments and Wall Street took advantage of that by selling both a lot of bonds and a lot of stocks to these very same people in the 1920s so it was sort of a new era for investment uh, some people no doubt uh, then and now uh, uh, got in too deep, you know, borrowed money when they didn't really have it. Uh, of course, the stock served as collateral until they went down, and then they led to margin calls. So, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I wouldn't blame it on uh, naive people getting into the stock market in the 1920s. A, a lot of sophisticated people uh, got swept up by the, the boom years of the 1920s. I want to ask you about those three particular days, October 24th, 28th, and 29th. And, and I'm going to do it after we take a quick break. But just before we take the, the break, Professor Seller, at the end of September 1929, at the beginning of October, first week of October uh, 1929, was there any real sense of what was about to happen? Uh, some people forecast it. There was a man named Roger Babson who took a look at the speculation and the high valuations, and he said a, a crash is probably right around the corner. But on the other hand, Professor Irving Fisher, uh, America, uh, one of America's greatest economists then or ever, uh, from Yale, uh, at around the same time, said he thought stocks had reached a permanently high plateau. So then, as almost always, there's disagreement about where the stock market's headed. But there were people warning. And the one big point to make is that at the beginning of September, the Federal Reserve worried about speculation. So in September 1929, they raised interest rates. And of course, the crash came a month and a half later. Professor Silla, here we are, last week of October 1929. What happened on those three days, beginning with October the 24th? October 24th, sometimes called Black Thursday, was a day where the market took a big fall in the morning, something like 10% down. Uh, what's interesting about that day is that when the, the leaders of the New York financial community got together and seeing this market going down and they hatched a plan, uh, sort of the, the bankers pooled their funds and they sent the head of the stock exchange, a man named Richard Whitney, onto the floor of the exchange on the afternoon of October 24th. And he began to buy stocks at prices above uh, the lows that they'd reached. And this sort of turned it around. And uh, so the market went down a lot in the morning. It came roaring back in the afternoon when the bankers tried to stop the decline. And uh, the, the close for the day was not very different from what had been uh, the day before. But uh, we're certain a large decline in the morning. The next day, New York newspaper said the uh, uh, stock market crisis over. Uh, and that was really a bad call because uh, that was uh, October 25th. And uh, uh, then on, over the weekend, uh, st stocks stabilized. Uh, they, were, they traded on Saturdays then. But uh, Monday and Tuesday, October 28th and October 29th, the market fell a little more than 10% each of those days. And that's what we call the great crash of 1929. 
So uh, Tuesday the 28th and Wednesday the 29th, 10% each day. So that's a 20% drop over two days. I think it was, I think it was Monday and Tuesday, not Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah. Okay, well, Monday and Tuesday. October 24, 28, and 29. So there's a 20, 20% drop on those two days added to the drop in uh, on on, uh, on the 24th. So were the underpinnings just gone? I mean, was that just a total collapse? Uh, what happened? What happened on the on the thirtieth? Uh, I think there, there may have been a slight recovery, but the main point to make for is a matter of history is that uh, over the next couple of weeks, the market tended to go down even more. It didn't reach a bottom till I don't know, you know, sort of toward the middle of uh, November, uh, November 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there, the market reached a bottom, and at that point, the Dow Jones average, which had been 380. Uh, at the height of the market in uh, August 1929. Uh, it, before the crash, it was down to around 300. And by the middle of November, it was down to 199. So you'd gone from 380 on the Dow in early September down to uh, 199. Your stocks lost uh, almost half of their value uh, in that particular period. Okay. So there are many myths that go along with the stock market crash. I don't know how to, where to separate the truth from uh, from the myths, fact from fiction. But one of the things I've heard, we've all heard, is that millions of people lost everything. That that was it, and it and it spawned the Great Depression. I understand from, and I've read some of your writings. I understand that the stock market crash didn't really spawn the Great Depression. But what about? Can you talk to us about that? And did millions of people just lose everything? I don't think millions of people lost everything, but those who had leveraged themselves, and that, that was one of the real problems, that the people got so agog about the stock market, they not only invested their own money, but they borrowed money from banks and non-banks, and there was a huge amount of margin debt. Uh, so uh, people who were fairly well-to-do uh, got on the wrong side of it and lost a lot of money because they got margin calls and they were sold out and so on. So, uh, I, I, you know, but it was it was bad, but what, what people often ignore, and this is the point I've been making, uh, is that uh, the rally uh, uh, took place after the middle of November and by the middle of April 1930, Good Friday 1930 was around mid-April, the stock market had really gained back almost all the ground it had lost in the crash proper, namely the period from uh, October 24th to mid-November. It went down from 300 to 199 then, and it was back right around 300 in April 1930. And then the New York Times then on the Good Friday edition said that uh, uh, it, it didn't talk about the great crash of 1929. It talked about the disturbance in the market last fall. And the idea was that it, the markets were no longer disturbed. So it's things that happened after the middle of 1930 that really led to the depression and so that had more those, to do with banks than the stock market okay what were some of the things that led to the great depression and just how bad was it uh, well it was pretty bad you know uh basically some banks began to fail late the, the u.s was in a recession admittedly it was in a recession uh, starting in 1929 going into 1930 but it could have been you know there have been a lot of recessions in history and that might have been an ordinary one what really happened toward the end of 1930 is there were widespread bank failures and then the bank failures continued into 1931 and the economy as the banks were failing uh the economy of the u.s sort of slipped from recession into depression and things were going on in europe you know uh, there were a big bank in austria failed in may the Germans uh, uh, went off the gold standard in July. Britain went off the gold standard in September, and that led to a run on U.S. gold. 
which in this very bad economic situation, you a really bad recession, the Federal Reserve, and, uh, after Britain went off gold, raised its rates from 1.5% to 3.5%. That's not what we economists say a central bank should do when the bottom's falling out of the economy. The last thing you want to do is raise interest rates, but the Fed, trying to protect the American gold stock, decided to more than double interest rates in October 1929, I mean in October of 1930, and um, 31, excuse me, I'm getting my years mixed up, October 1931, in response to Britain going off gold in September, the U.S. Fed raised more than doubled its policy rate. And that made 1932 the worst year in U.S. history with about 25% unemployment. Prices were down 30, 40%. Um, And when prices went down like that, the farmers had a hard time repaying their debts to the banks. And a lot of other people had borrowed from banks when they lost their jobs or their whatever they sold went down in value, they couldn't repay their loans. Okay. So you had uh, bank failures continuing right into early 1933. Uh, we, I say the bank failures is what caused the depression to be so bad, not the stock market crash. We have about 30 seconds. Is there a cautionary tale being told today by you about the situation today? Do we, do we need to learn something from what happened in 1929 and the 1930s, given the situation today? Well, I do think we have learned a lot. You know, Ben Bernanke said he learned a lot by studying the Depression, and uh, he wasn't going to have another one. So when he was head of the Fed about 10 years ago, uh, they uh, responded to the 2008-2009 crisis by adding a lot of liquidity, not raising interest rates. They pushed interest rates down. Uh, what got us in what made that world financial crisis so bad about a little over 12 years ago was that the banks got into trouble uh right now i would say the banks are fairly solid and so even if the stock market goes down uh we don't really have to worry about another uh, worldwide financial crisis thank you for listening to today's podcast if you want to hear more subscribe to the roy green show on apple podcasts Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.